All right. Well, we are in week three of our Advent season, and we are looking at love this morning. Um, I, I want to throw out, before we get into the scriptures, just throw out some, some things to consider, okay? Um, when you and I say that we love something or we love someone, uh, have you ever considered the, the crazy reality that in the English language, there's only one word for love? There's a lot of different phrases that may kind of help us get to the core meaning of that word love, but in general, in the English tongue, there's only really one word for love. In many languages, that's not the case. The, the New Testament was written in, uh, in Greek, ancient Greek, and there's around six different words that describe love in our New Testament. And so here we are in America where at my house on Tuesday, we have Taco Tuesday. You may have Taco Tuesday in their house. Is that just us? Man, you guys got to come to our house on Tuesday now. It's Taco Tuesday. We love Taco Tuesday. It's great. So we can say, I love Taco Tuesday. And then we can look to our spouse or friend or sibling or whomever and say, I love you. And it's the same word. But hopefully that's a different love. Right? Hopefully, our love for our spouse or friends or whatnot is somewhat different than our love for Taco Tuesday. So you kind of get where I'm going. Like, the English language can kind of cheapen what, in Scripture, the, the density of love. Uh, our language doesn't really allow us to get very far. We have to kind of start using other words if we want to talk about the different nuances and different kinds of love that exist. And so... Especially when scripture says God is love. God is love. Again, that's a big difference between when I say I love Taco Tuesday and say God exists as love. How do we differentiate this? What does that mean? How do we understand? So, um, you know, I just want you, you know, you're, you're, um, uh, to, to kind of zoom out, right? Um, Culturally speaking, we're also kind of losing our kind of grasp of the, the, the broadness of this word love. So um, it's common today to hear things like, well, we just need to love everyone, love all, regardless of race or ethnicity or gender. We should love all people. And yes, of course, like this is true. There's some truth to that. But when we hear that kind of love, uh, that kind of phrase, what usually is meant by that is something like we need to accept all, or we need to bear all, or we need to tolerate all. And again, if I went to my wife Alexandra, she said, I love you, and I responded, yes, I accept you, or I tolerate you. Like, there's, there's a different, exactly, right? It wouldn't go over well. It wouldn't go over well. My whole point, right? We need to understand what we mean by love. That, that never, you know, that doesn't happen. I've never said that. Even in weak moments, I've never said, I tolerate you. <laughs> there are many different kinds of love, and we need to understand scripturally how we understand that. And so we're going to dive into uh, a story to begin with where I think really displays this in just one of the most amazing uh, uh, statements in all the scripture. So it's from the, the book of Ruth. 
And so in the Hebrew Scriptures, we have this little book right after the book of Judges, and it's the book of Ruth. Ruth, Ruth was a foreigner. She was not an Israelite, but she was married to one. She was a Moabite. In the story, her husband sadly dies while she is still young. Her brothers, his brothers, and his father then die. And in terms of all the family that is left, it is only Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, comes to her with a plan. And really, if you were alive in, in this day, it would have made a lot of sense. Survival as a widow in those ancient days was not easy without, you know, men or male family members around. Making a living for yourself would be enormously difficult, sometimes even impossible, especially for the case with an aged woman like Naomi. But Ruth was still, was still young and in child-rearing years, maritable age, and so um, if she were to return to her own people, said Naomi, she could then find a new spouse, you know, get married and, and find survival, find a new life. I want you to listen to how Ruth responds to this request. It, it's one of the most amazing uh, 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 ways that love is communicated without using the word love here in um, the scriptures. This is what Ruth said in verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Yahweh, may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What kind of love is that? Right? The word love isn't really here. It's not there, but something incredibly deep and profound Ruth just expressed. Where you go, I will be right with you. Where you sleep, I'm going to be near you. Your people shall be my people. The God you worship, her as a foreigner, she said, now your God is my God. I am joining as, you know, a worshiper of your God. Where you die, you will find me with you. And where you're buried, I will be buried. And may I die by the hand of God if anything but death parts me from you. Just let those Statements, those, those words really soak in. They're very poetic, you know. But the love is a special sort of love that there is a Hebrew word that, I, that is actually used a few chapters into the book of Ruth um, that uh, describes what Ruth just said here. Um, as the story goes on, you can read it. It's a short little book. Uh, word got around about Ruth's love and what she did for Naomi. It was unheard of that she would say, no, I want to make sure, Naomi, that you're cared for. I'm not going to go take care of myself. I want to make sure that you're okay. I'm never going to leave you, never going to part from you. Word got around about that. And in chapter 3, verse 10, there's a word that was used by someone to describe that, and it's the word chesed. All right, everybody say chesed. You got to kind of spit when you say it, like don't spit on the person in front of you. But it's one of those Hebrew words that has a sound, you know, like chesed. And it's, it's chesed love, right? It's, um, I was just reading about it. I, I've read about this word so many times, and I'm no, you know, Hebrew scholar or anything, but uh, I was reading about how the word is, is almost untranslatable, okay? In all the English translations of the Bible, which there are many, 
it's translated over 160 different ways. In other words, we don't really know <laughs> what word to use to describe this word. Like, we have to use over 160 different words to provide all the nuance according to, you know, where it's used and how it's used. Um, my best efforts to describe this word that was used to talk about Ruth's love for her mother-in-law, um, hesed, it's a covenant love or a loyal love. A steadfast love. Somebody in the 1500s, when they were translating this, invented a word um, for it. They, they, they invented the word loving kindness as one word. And it's still insufficient. It's, it's a love that is not dependent on the person who receives its response from getting more of it. It's devoted regardless of how that person responds to it. It is saying, I am bound in love to you, and nothing is going to separate this from you. It's hard to wrap our minds around. Ruth kind of expressed that here. There was no qualifications for Ruth's love, right? Where you go, I'm going to be behind you. And on your deathbed, I'm going to be there holding your hand. You may think, you know, this kind of sounds like a wedding, you know, similar to a covenant of marriage, but, you know... Again, we just looked at Ruth speaking with her mother-in-law here. This, this kind of love breaks those boundaries. And I would argue this is kind of the most profound love that is displayed in Scripture that um, is truly the most selfless love. When we see this kind of love in movies, we truly marvel at it. But it's becoming more and more difficult to see because in our incredibly just over-sexualized culture today, um, uh, all stories have some element that have an element of love always, almost always these days, go into this romantic direction. Uh, romantic love has been an idol in our country since the Beatles, you know. Um, it, it's been a, a problem with us for so long. Like, you know, th there's early stages of romantic love, right? The, the kind of the, the, the fling stage or the attraction stage or whatever kind of figure. And it's exciting and it appeals a lot to the emotions and to the feelings. And we're such a feeling culture. We're such an emotional, emotive culture that we're kind of obsessed. I mean, just listen to modern countries country music and you'll just, it's all you hear, right, is that kind of early stage love, you know, uh, people sing about and, you know, almost, uh, you know, fantasize about even later in life is having again and we've made an idol out of it. But there's a deep loyal friendship in movies and in stories and in books that's becoming scarcer and scarcer to find, but um, I, I think it's, it's these kinds of, of friendships that I usually love to read about, right? Um, I talk about Lord of the Rings a lot. I think I'm always reading J.R. Tolkien, like usually all the time, to some degree, one of his books. And um, if you read Lord of the Rings, right, you have Sam and Frodo, right? Sam is just absolutely loyal to Frodo. Even when he's betrayed by Frodo, Sam still shows back up to his friend. And when Frodo is so weak, he can't even climb, you know, Mount Doom to go get rid and destroy the ring. What does Sam do? He picks him up to his own peril and climbs a mountain carrying, it, you know, Frodo on his shoulders. Um, to some degree, that's this devoted, loyal covenant 
love. Just this past uh, weekend, I showed to my older kids It's a Wonderful Life. And um, I don't often get, you know, choked up in movies, but how can you not watch that and just want to cry, right? I mean, come on. It ends with this whole community of people, none of which have a lot of money or anything, coming to the rescue of, um, of, of the, the main guy, I already forget his name, uh, whatever his name is, and he, you know, it was an accident, and his company lost all this money, and they're about to go under. And the entire community comes around him just to give him $10, $20, here money, to save his company. And there's this devotion of these, this whole community to this man that at the end, you're like, this is, this is an amazing act of love. And it's not even just an act of generosity. There's a loyalty here, right, that is being displayed that just really gets us and, and strikes us to our core. But even all those examples, I could go on and on, right? It's still not the fullness of this chesed love that Scripture talks about. In Scripture, there's only one person who is ascribed as love. Not somebody who loves, somebody who engages in love, somebody who is love. And as a result, the earth is full of his love. Uh, Psalm 33 verse 5 says, this is speaking of Yahweh God, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast, the hesed love of the Lord. Dozens and dozens of examples could be given of this, this word hesed used to describe the love of God. The world is full of it. Yes, Ruth had it in some part directed towards her mother-in-law, but it is still not the fullness of it because in reality, we as humans, we can't really fully uh, and perfectly love this way. Um, the Israel prophets, they continually say, you know, how... God had this love for his own people, but in his own people, it kind of would be there, then just kind of float away. Uh, coming out of Hosea 4, chapter 1, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love or hesed love and no knowledge of God in the land. It's not there. It's not found among my people towards God. But why? You know, why can't we perfectly kind of live in this? Like, again, Israel would have seasons where it's there, and then it would swing the other direction. Why can't we perfectly maintain? God is not one who is swing or altered by seasons or by, you know, events. He is constantly the one who is love, steadfastly and loyally. He is the God of love. He is love, but we can't describe humanity like that. Why can't we? What is it about human nature? I spent a lot of time um, pacing. Our laundry machines weren't working, so I was doing laundry in our uh, church basement like all day Friday. It was quite the scene. And, but I was pacing, sermon prepping at the same time, just like making circles around our downstairs hall, just thinking about this question and praying, Lord, like, how do we... How do I describe what's wrong with human nature? Like, it's so complex, right? Why can't we love like this consistently and constantly and every day and all day? There's also later in the Hosea, he says that um, the love of God's people is as fleeting as the morning dew or like a small cloud that kind of is there and whoosh, kind of wisps away because we're fickle. 
That word kept coming when I was just praying and thinking through all the examples in Scripture. We're just, we're fickle, fickle people. In our, in our hearts, we're, we're constantly giving into cheap things, cheap loves that maybe bring good feelings momentarily. And this is a cyclical part of our human nature, that part of us that's just fallen and, and weak, but that is not in God's nature. Uh, scholar, pastor, and author, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, when looking at the Christian, at Christians and this call that we have to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, he identified a phrase, that, especially for humans, right, that we need to kind of grasp onto in this idea of, of following Jesus with all of our life. And he says, really, for humanity, following Jesus, says Peterson, is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I feel like that's a really well-phrased statement that, you know, when we think of what it takes for a human nature, you know, to be, to be pointed towards Christ, it's, it's a long work. It is a lifelong work, but we need to think about it as a lifelong work in the same direction. Because usually our hearts are divided. They're not in one direction at all. They're over here, they're over there, they're going over there. This impulse, this desire wants to get us over here. Often it curves inward, you know, and their own desires are for ourself, right? Uh, King David once said in Psalm 86, 11, he said, um, he, in a prayer, he said, unite my heart, Lord, to fear your name. And I've, I remember as a teenager, I loved that verse because I'm like, yeah, my heart needs uniting, right? Because it is divided constantly, it is always divided between this and that. Unite my heart to fear your name. Chesed love is a united love. It is an undivided love. It is a love that spurs God himself into a love for you and I. That is a covenant-based love, a covenant based on himself, a vow on himself. And thus it is like a continual river always flowing towards us and never ceasing. We, we sung a song this morning where I was like, man, maybe that's my sermon and I can just not preach, right? Your love never gives up. It never goes out on me, right? Kind of like contemporary language that we have today to, to voice what scripture says. Like it doesn't give up. It doesn't run out. It's, it's always aimed. It's always flowing and going towards us. This is chesed love. And so when the apostle John says that God is love, that this idea of love that we're talking about isn't only something God does, but rather who he is. It's an identity of who God is. He cannot help but be love. Um, he, he always perfectly loves. And so um, uh, to question, just to kind of push pause, we have some more things to, to go to, more places to go here, but the first stop is, you know, just do some little reflect, I have a reflective moment here. Like, what is or where is the love of your heart this morning? Where is it devoted to? You may even be here and think, I didn't even, I haven't even stopped to give that kind of reflection. I don't even know. Because, I mean, to be honest, in 2023, we can go through... <clears throat> 24-hour day cycle just never stop for reflective thoughts about anything. 
I mean, the instantaneous reels of social media, Instagram, whatever, can just fill every waking moment to a reflective thoughts of like, where, where is my heart devoted to right now? Like, what are the things I truly am devoted to? Who is really receiving my love right now? In Jeremiah chapter 2, God said, he said, my people have committed two sins. They've rejected the living waters and substituted the living waters of God for their own dugout cistern, or think of like a well, right? They substituted the living waters. They tried to dig out their own well to put their own, this is Daniel's paraphrase, and put in their own water into their well, but they realized that anything they've dug out for themselves is it's just broken, and the water's just leaking out. All the while, there's this living spring of water over here, and we're over here just digging away, trying to dig our own holes and put our own water in, and the Lord's like, it's just leaking. Are you, look, look at what I'm offering you. What are you digging away at right now? What are you, it's like putting, you know, your money in a bag of holes, he says elsewhere, Right? You're putting your money in the back of holes. Like, this doesn't, cont- it doesn't do what, it, the, the well that you're digging is not doing the job that you want it to do. Have you realized that? And when we place our loves on things that are not God, we're looking for something in that to give us a return. And God is saying, it's never going to give you the return you're looking for. What are you doing? You will be exhausted as you always will be digging and digging and digging And still the water you're trying to put in will just leak and leak and leak. Where is your love this morning? For those in your life whom you love, how could your love towards them be described? You know this, as I was thinking about this, like this shows how fickle we are, just, you know, complex we are as people. But the trickiest part of, of love is how we can devote love to someone, but simultaneously use our love for them and maybe perhaps any sort of credibility or trust that we develop with that person, we can take that and then uh, manipulate it for our own self-gain and purposes, right? That shows just how kind of sick and, you know, sick our hearts can really be. We're just such self-centered, fickle creatures, but that's not who God is. And it never stopped God from aiming his love at you and I. There's even a couple of times in, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament when he said, you know, his spirit had actually departed from his people in the book of Ezekiel. And, and, and he says, I, I have to depart from you. But he, he never said, I am fully done with you. He was a father who was uh, giving parental discipline to his children in order that they may then return to him. And here's where our Christmas story enters. We're going to spend a few minutes in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And we will build ourselves up to kind of the crescendo of the first Christmas morning where God's chesed love was on great display. So we need to understand um, exactly who this Jesus was to understand, you know, the, the, to understand the extraordinary love on that first Christmas morning. Let's first just visit who exactly is this Jesus? This is how the, how the Apostle John, as he wrote his gospel, this is how he describes Jesus. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, should be on the screen behind us as well. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So yes, that baby who was born in the manger, we first need to kind of look back and somehow in our own finite minds peer into the infinite, infinite nature of, of, of time itself, which then time becomes redundant. There is no time if something's infinite. So we look back into just infinite past in Jesus. We can't say even he was, we can say he is. He was there at the beginning. He is the word of God, the very wisdom of God, the very, if you can think of of all the desires and hearts and longings and wisdom of God, if it was manifested into a person, that was Jesus Christ. And it says furthermore that that nothing that we see, the trees, the animals, the the dirt, my, my, my children at the creek yesterday just pulling rocks out and breaking them open and looking at the shiny stuff and learning about them and just amazed at rocks. I was kind of laughing. I was like, my kids are obsessed. They've been doing this for like three hours. They're looking at rocks. But then they got me into it. And I was like, that is an amazing looking rock after all. It's beautiful, right? The world is beautiful. None of these things exist, says God, apart from Jesus Christ. Through him, they were made. Verse 4 says, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And that light his life, it shone into the darkness. But the darkness didn't understand it. They didn't quite understand the light that Jesus was shining into the world. I, I really appreciate that, kind of, in a way. You know? Because a lot of times, I, I feel like when Jesus ministered to people and he loved people, I wonder if they, a lot of people were just more kind of confused initially. Like, I don't understand. We see some of that here or there, right? But I just wonder if we saw him work and, and saw him te- and heard him teach and, and saw the things he did, if we would have been like, who is this person? In fact, we, we see some people doing that. Who is this guy? Like, what, what? I don't quite understand. And in fact, the love that he shows here, I hope to describe in such a way that will still leave you in that place of saying, wow, so, this is so hard to even grasp. Right? This is so hard to even understand. It's such an alien, amazing love that we're seeing. We're going to skip down a little bit to verse 14. We could spend weeks in John chapter 1, but let's, let's look down to our Christmas verse, if you will, this morning. A very famous verse in, in John chapter 1, verse 14. That Jesus, who has always been the very wisdom of God, who all things were created through, and even Paul later says, four. It is that Jesus, in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, why would the word, Jesus, the pre-existent one who always has been and is, Why would he become flesh? Why would he take on skin and bones? Pretend like he heard this for the first time. You know, when when John wrote this, he was, you know, there's kind of like an apologetic nature to this writing, meaning, you know, he was writing it 
for people who were the, for the first time, you know, in, their, in this ancient world hearing about Jesus. Your God became flesh? That's a shocking statement. The one whom all things are created through became part of the creation himself that he created? As Peter said, he called him the author of life. As we know the story, the author of life died? The author of life? Who life was in? It says that life was in him and it shone in the one whom life was said to reside in submitted himself to death? Yes, the one who created all things became one of us. And it's an incredible job, as like I said a minute ago, for preachers to try to communicate this because this indeed is that Hesed love, the greatest love the world could, could, could ever fathom or even imagine. Um, think about this, the stories we do like to imagine, just to show you that this one is still, you know, it's not really in, even in the American imagination still. Because, you know, we can, we can describe Jesus' story as from riches to rags. Now, think of any story, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's something out there, but if there is, this is, this is a very small minority. Think of any story that has reached the, the, the pinnacle of our, you know, American imagination through movies or books or stories or whatever, where somebody, you know, it usually goes like this. Somebody who is living normal, poor, maybe lives, you know, is presented with this great challenge, but, and they come victorious. And at the end, they're usually this, like, wealthy, powerful person from rags to riches. That's kind of like the American dream in a way, you know? We don't make movies about somebody who has everything the world has to offer and then sets all of that aside, moves in with the poorest of the poor, and then gives their life over for those people without a dime to his name. He dies for them. Like, we don't make movies like that. It's not really a part of our imagination because it really doesn't make any sense. Because in our minds, love, you know, anything we do has to have something in it for us, right? Like, what, what's, what's in it for me? Like, what am I gaining from this? What crown do I get to put on at the end of the day for all my friends and family to see? Like, oh, look at what he achieved. Look at what he's done. Look at the, the ladder he climbed to have this or have that. And the story of Jesus says, no, 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 I had all of that. I was in heaven. And I put it all aside. I, I got it over here. I put it aside. And instead of entering the world like a king with all the power and riches and money, I entered the world as the lowliest of the low. On the very bottom, like that's me. And I, I entered into there and I lived amongst people just like me. And I died next to criminals in the most horrendous, disgusting, horrific death you could fathom on the cross. The Christmas story was the beginning of that story. And it's a love that says what? And the scripture says he did it for you. He did it for you, friends. He did it for you. He set all those things aside. He did it for you. In our American story, you would may call that a tragedy. We may call that a tragic story. But the scripture calls it a story of victory. A story of salvation. 
a story that we get to discover our true humanity through the way that Jesus lived. This is, oh, the way that our culture loves and tells us to achieve and all these things. Wait, what is the ways of Christ that is a self-giving, covenant, loyal love that says, even if I get nothing out of this, I'm going to show the love of God as I embrace how he loved me. I'm going to expend myself for those around me. That's the light that we are to shine in this world. That still, 2,000 years later, is still an alien light. It's still a confusing light for so many. And it all started that Christmas morning. John 3, verse 16 through 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He loved the world that he gave his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was love that made him enter into human flesh, born that first Christmas morning. Paul also said in Galatians 1 and 3 through 5, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to God's will, the will of the Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. He gave himself for our sins. This is why he came into the world. This is a love that drove him. That's Hesed love, friends. Um, there's a wonderful quote. Um, I didn't read it this year, but most years I try to get through um, the ancient Christian book by um, St. Athanasius called on the Incarnation, written about 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, It's this amazing book. I really encourage you to read it. It's pretty short. And this is how he describes the Incarnation. That's a fancy word for what took place on Christmas morning, Jesus entering flesh. Listen to this. The Lord did not come to make... I just really want you to consider this. Like, I love this. The Lord did not come to make a display He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not vivitating or devaluing the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. Okay, in modern language, this is what he's saying. Jesus didn't come to, you know, he didn't like do a miracle and like have like glitter poof and be like, ah, do you see that? Ooh, like that's not what he did. He didn't come to like dazzle people with his, his works, you know? Like, think of, like, today, the most talented people among us. We love to just to platform people and put them up and make their own YouTube channel and subscribe and just watch the ooh and ah people all day at their skills and talents. And Jesus had every opportunity as God in the flesh to dazzle people, but his love drove him in such a way that he says, I'm just here to serve. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And it really kind of breaks the mind almost. Because the temptation is humans to say, man, like, if I had that kind of skills, like, I could, you know, build my own following and cash in on that, right? And write a couple of books to go along with it, you know? And, like, I could really do something with that. And Jesus is like, no, I came here just to give myself over for you. I came here to put myself at your disposal. 
That's Hesed love, the ultimate act of self-giving, covenant, loyal love. And we're, we're going to close here in a minute. When John said, the Apostle John says this, um, and I want to start with kind of application points. By this we know love, 1 John 16 through 18. Because if we talk about this love, some applications going to come our way now in the back end of our sermon. We're going to close here in a minute that says, um, what does this mean for us? Tuesday morning, we're brushing our teeth, going to work. Like, okay, great. This love is amazing. What, 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 what impact does this have on my life? Okay. Um, how do we live? First John 3, 6, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we did it there right? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. We talked about this morning in prayer that, uh, you know, if, um, imagine if God's, I love you, God said, I love you, I love you, but he never was born in that manger, the cross never occurred. He's, I love you, I love you. We would question, like, okay, like, where is the love, right? The, the manger and the cross are, represent the active love of God. We know he loves us, says John, because he laid down his life for us. Love, of course, becomes validated when our lives engage it, Right? If we're followers of Jesus wanting to live in his way and we see this as the kind of love that he had, then the question is, our, our lives should be now marked by this, permeated with it, that when we live day in and day out, this should describe our life. Even if it's imperfectly, it should describe our life. John 13, 35, they will know us by our love for one another. They did not say they will know the churches across America by the quality of their music ministry. They will know the churches across our country because of their beautiful real estate or buildings or amazing sermons they preach or you name it. No, he said they will know who are the followers of Jesus in this world by those who are loving like Jesus. We must love, not just in words, friends, but in deed or truth, for that is how Jesus himself loved us. And so as we close this morning, I can call the worship team up at this point, I think, yes. Um, to learn to love like Christ, it takes a partnership with God's Spirit. I can't sit here and say, you need to grit your teeth and will it out of you. No, like, we are a church this morning, who believes in the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that God has called us and filled us with the Spirit in order that our life may be one giant partnership with God's Spirit. And so as we see this love and we yearn it, we realize the healing nature, the freeing nature, that this love can free us from love of self and direct it towards love of God. That this love can free us from self-indulgent desires and look at our neighbors and say, how can I show them the love of Christ? And the Holy Spirit says, I'm here to fill you and to assist and to help and to empower because this is God's love and he wants to pour it into our hearts. As we see this, we say, you know, don't, we have to rid ourselves. People may perceive you then as weak if you walk in the love of God. 
They may perceive you as even backwards to some degree or not understanding why you're living the way you are. I don't know, but it doesn't matter because we are to devote ourselves to this. And what we will find along the way is a deep inner healing within you and a freedom within you that says, I don't have to live for love of self anymore. There's, I don't know if there's a greater spiritual healing than when God's love is poured into our hearts when we get to see this world and others through his love. It's like chains can fall off of our hands and our arms and we're free to love as God loves with that love that transcends human love. I want to close with a scripture from Paul here because he says this, and make this be a prayer. I want to pray this right now over all of us, including myself. He says this, Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, fill us with your fullness this morning. Would your clean waters flush us out, Lord, of love of self and our selfish desires, Lord, and our destructive habits and things that we have in our life that just has our own interests in mind. And Lord, set our, our hearts on the interests of others, on your interests, Lord. Fill us with your fullness, O oh God. May we have just a glimpse of comprehension of the vastness of the love that you have shown us, Lord, even as it began on that first Christmas morning. Lord, may this church be known by the love we have for one another and the love we have for this city. Lord, fill us with your fullness, Lord. Pour into our hearts your love, O oh God. We thank you, Jesus, for your love. And all these things, Lord, we pray in your holy and righteous name. Amen.